Well, we knew that time was going to come eventually. God had warned His people in no uncertain terms that if they continue and persisted to be like all the other nations, to, be, to reject Him and to take for themselves a human king, that this whole experiment was not going to ultimately end well. But even though that God's people continued to ignore God's warning, various warnings, um, God still continued to be gracious to them, which was a little bit shocking. He continued to extend grace upon grace upon grace. And the reason that he did that is because he wanted his goodness to lead his people to repentance. But up to this point, uh, none of that has really worked. In fact, now in the beginning of chapter 13, we begin to see things to fall apart. See, that's one of the dangers about our sin against God is that many times when we first sin, we don't see the immediate consequences of those sinful decisions and those sinful actions. In fact, we sometimes can go a very long period of time and everything seems, is seemingly really good. Everything seems uh, to be wonderful. However, eventually, hints begin to arise and begin to be seen that not all is well with God that there is sin that is impacting and affecting our relationship with Him. And that's what we begin to see here in chapter 13. We see it played out here. Now, in 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 25, I need to go back just a little bit. At Saul's coronation, uh, we read these words. It says, Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book, and he laid it up before the Lord. Now, what was happening there is this, is as soon as they announced that Saul is the king, Samuel wrote a little kind of um, how to be a king uh, in Israel type little booklet, all right? And in it were instructions for whoever the king of Israel was going to be on how he ought to govern God's people. Now, we don't know what the specific details of those commands and instructions were, but we do understand the overall premise through our study of chapter 13. And here is the overall premise of that little book that Samuel wrote for Saul and for the rest of Israel's kings. What it was was this. No matter who you ultimately choose as king, there is only one king for Israel that we are to fully and completely submit to, and that is God and God alone. And whoever you choose as a king is to submit himself to God and submit himself to his word. To disobey God and to disobey his word would, in essence, disqualify whoever that human king would be. And that's what we find in chapter 13. We find Saul disobeying God and becoming disqualified to ultimately lead God's people. Now, here's what we're going to do. This morning, we're going to look at this little bit of this story, not a huge chunk of scripture, but a little bit. And we want to use it to be able to prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper that we're going to take. And in doing so, there are three things that we want to look at. The first thing we want to see is Saul's blatant disobedience. Saul's blatant disobedience. Now, notice, if you will, beginning in verse 8, follow along with me. The Bible says he waited seven days. He's talking about Saul here. He says, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offerings. And as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offerings, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Now to understand what's happening here, the significance, you have to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 10 again. 
There in 1 Samuel chapter 10 and verse 8, Samuel had commanded Saul to go to Gilgal and to wait for him, uh, wait until he got there, and he would have to wait for a period of seven days. When Samuel got to Gilgal with Saul, it's then he would offer up offerings to God, and then he would give further instructions to Saul on where to go and on what he should ultimately do. And now remember in this is that Samuel is God's mouthpiece to the people and to Saul himself. His words are literally God's words. To disobey Samuel was to ultimately and directly disobey God, and that's exactly what happened. He had received the very clear instructions of Samuel, of God, to wait for Samuel, but he doesn't wait. Well, at least not completely. He waits seven days, or at least most of seven days, but then he gets a little bit antsy. Anyone know what it's like to be antsy? I'm always antsy for Christmas. We never make it to Christmas Day to open up the gifts at my house, and it's not because of the kids. It's usually because of me. You can ask my wife. We're, we're sitting there going, why are we waiting till tomorrow? And my wife's like, because that's Christmas. I said, yeah, but the gifts are just waiting right there. They're just doing nothing, and I get antsy, and I end up moving before we should ultimately move. Well, this is what Saul does. He, he doesn't obey. He moves before he is supposed to move, and he ultimately disobeys God by really offering up offerings that he had no reason to be able to do. The moment he gets done offering up these sacrifices to God, the moment that he does, he hears that Samuel arrives into the city. It's almost one of those rut row kind of things, right? And so he hears it, he goes, he goes out to the city, he meets them, and he greets them. And when Samuel sees them, he says these famous words, what have you done? Okay? Now, if you're a parent, you know that phrase, right? You know that phrase. If, if you're not a parent, let me just try to illustrate this the best that I possibly can. You're a parent, you know what it's like to be sitting with your husband or wife in the living room or the kitchen, and you're just talking finally a moment of silence, and you're, and you're catching up, and you're enjoying yourself, maybe over a hot cup of joe or a Diet Coke like me. And so you're sitting there, and, you're, and then all of a sudden you're enjoying yourself so much, but all of a sudden it dawns on you, why is it so quiet? Well, it's, it's, it's too quiet. What in the world is going on? And so you begin to kind of tiptoe around trying to figure out, is there something happening here? And you find yourself going into one of the kids' bedrooms, and there is your four-year-old in one hand with scissors and the other hand a huge clump of hair, right? And now your beautiful four-year-old daughter looks like Mo from the Three Stooges, right? And, and, and how do you respond? What do you say? What? Say it with me. What have you done? right? Same exact idea here with Samuel. And these are not words of approval, young people, just so we know. But these are words of disappointment and really disbelief. Disappointment and disbelief. And so what happens is he, he, he's in disbelief that, that he has broken the clear commands of God. He know, It wasn't a, a sin from from ignorance. It wasn't as though he wasn't instructed properly. He just did whatever it is that he thought was best to be able to ultimately do. And, and he's, he's wanting some, how can, this, how can this possibly be? How could this have happened? And so what we find out next, the second major thing that we see is we see Saul's desperate justification. See, as parents, we know this as well. When you ask your kids in the moment of shock and awe and what have you done, then it's time for them to justify why they cut their hair off, right? 
at that moment. And so this is where his attempts at justification are. Notice in the text of Scripture, he says, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Mishmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offerings. Now this is what we call justification. This is how we begin to defend our sinful actions. And I think that this is seen in two ways, two ways that we often do this. One is in the justification of what I call the justification of situation. That basically says my situation is such that I had no other choice. Uh, I was in a tough time. I was in a tough place. I, I had no other choice. They determined my sinful action. There's nothing I could ultimately do about it. And this is this is the first kind of response and, and really the excuse of, that uh, Saul gives. He says, when I saw that the people were scattering from me. Now, what, to understand that, you have to understand really the beginning of chapter 13. There, what ultimately happens is Jonathan, who is the son of Saul, he, he kind of fights and he has this little battalion and they go and fight this little skirmish with the Philistines. It's not even a whole battle. And then Saul, so full of pride, begins to go around blowing a, a ram's horn over all of Israel, letting everybody know that he has defeated, uh, 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 he has defeated in battle the Philistines. First of all, it wasn't him and it wasn't even really a big battle. It was just a teeny skirmish. Well, the Philistines didn't like people that brag, FSU fans. And so, so what he did was they, 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 they gathered the military together. They gathered 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and, and men, uh, other foot soldiers that numbered more than the sands of the seashore. And they gathered and they came up against Israel. They were going to say, we'll show you to brag. Seminoles. And so they, so they gathered around them to destroy them. And you can imagine uh, Saul is there and he has a very small group of men and they begin to fear. And what they begin to do is they begin to run and they begin to desert and they begin to hide in, in, in holes and in cisterns and they begin to hide behind rocks. And so here is the commander in chief. He's got to gather these people together. He's got to do something or he's going to not have any army at all. So he does the only thing he knows to do is try to encourage the people by offering up this offering, which was not his offering to ultimately offer up to God. And so he turns around and he says, what was I supposed to do? The men were leaving. They were fleeting. I didn't have a military. I did the only thing I could. I tried to encourage the men. I did what I did because the situation I was in dictated it. It's the same way with us saying, look, I had to cheat on my test or I would have failed. If I had failed, then I wouldn't be able to be on the basketball team. I had to lie to my boss or if I didn't, I would have, I would have lost a job. And I wouldn't have had money to be able to take care of my kids. Look at my kids. Don't you want me to take care of my kids? I had to be deceptive on my income tax or else I would have had to pay some big fine. I just don't have money to pay that fine. Where would I ever come up with that money to be able to pay that type of fine? And this is what we see. This is the type of thing that not only Saul does, but oftentimes, unfortunately, God's people do as well. We try to justify our sinful action. And now, listen, let me make sure this is clear sinful action towards the very clear-cut commands of what God is telling us to do. I'm not talking about things that we're per se struggling with. I'm not talking about things that are those gray areas of life. I'm just talking about clearly the Word of God, and when you and I decide it's not time to obey Him because of the difficult circumstances in which I'm in. My situation dictates that I sinned. I had no other choice. That's what Saul says. That's what many of us say. 
The second kind of justification is what I call justification of a victimization. This kind of justification has nothing to do really with difficult circumstances, but really with difficult people. Can I get an amen, right, and everything? And so what it basically says is, I did what I did because a response to what somebody else did or did not ultimately do. And this is what he's pulling out here, and he's pulling this out on Samuel. In fact, he says, and that you did not come within the days appointed. You can almost hear him, didn't you? I mean, you can hear him sitting there and go, listen, I wouldn't have had to do what you were supposed to do if you just would have shown up on time. But you didn't show up on time. And because you didn't show up on time, I had to do something. And then he goes on and he says, I had to do something that I didn't even want to do. I forced myself to do something I didn't know how to do. And it's because of you. Do you see? It's a shifting of blame and guilt away from oneself to someone else. Now, this is the classic justification. This is as old as mankind itself. In the garden, you see Adam and Eve kind of tinkering with the same type of justification, don't you? When God comes to Adam and he basically says the same thing that the Samuel says to Saul, what have you done? What does he say? Well, it's the woman. The woman, and then what? That you gave me. So he's shifting blame not only on himself, but he's shifting on his wife and he's shifting it on the God who gave him this wife. And then when it gets to her, ladies, you're, you're not innocent either. And at that particular time, he says, what have you done? What did she say? Well, you know, it's the serpent. The, the, it's what we say as little kids. The devil made me do it, right? That, and we're shifting the blame off to somebody else. So he's, he's shifting it to, to, to Samuel. He's shifting it to the, to, to the Philistines, the mean Philistines. He says, in that the Philistines had mustered at Mishmash. I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So he's even trying to spiritualize by what he's doing. And this is where we get that scripture, which ultimately says, God prefers obedience rather than sacrifice. Here he's making a sacrifice, but God sits there and goes, hey, that's all great. It's nice to see how you try to sacrifice and do the right thing, but the truth is you did the wrong thing. What about you just obeying? And he doesn't do that. Then again, he says at the end, so I forced myself to offer the burnt offering. He's saying I was in a difficult situation. I was surrounded by difficult people. What else was I to do? That's the question. The question that we often ask, and I have three answers for Saul, and I think Samuel had three answers for Saul, and here they are. Well, Saul, you could have obeyed. You could have obeyed. That was the other option to disobedience is, is, is obedience, actually, actually doing it. Uh, you could have done what you knew to clearly be right. In this particular case, this was not one of those crazy, mystic, uh, a lot of interpreters disagree and, and theologians disagree with this point. This was just very simple. Wait. And you didn't wait. Number three, you could have said you could have trusted God and obeyed while leaving the results up to God. That's what God calls us to oftentimes. Listen, l- let me understand this. Our job is not to try to figure out how our obedience is going to impact our future life. Really, our, what our ultimate job is, is to obey and trust God that he can figure it out and that he's a good God. And so these are the things that really, this is how we answer that question. What else should I have done? You should have obeyed. You should have done what you know is clearly right. You should have known what was done was clearly right and trust God for the results. Now, this was Saul's mistake that he made. and It's what many of us make. Saul's disobedience to submit to God's clear word suggested, and I'm I'm quoting from an author here, that there are certain emergencies. Listen to this very carefully. His mistake was thinking that there are certain emergencies, there are certain difficulties, 
And there's certain unique situations that render obedience to God's word unnecessary. Do you hear what I'm saying? That there are certain emotional difficulties, certain problems, certain situations that we're in, that it's okay for us to be able to tap out and say, I know what the word of God says, but under this particular circumstance, and do you know what that certain circumstance usually is? The circumstance that you and I find ourselves in. It's amazing how many times it's so true and it's God's truth. It's God's truth. We have to be able to obey it. But when we are faced with that very truth, there are many of God's people who will sit there and say, we know what God's truth is, but in this particular situation, it doesn't hold true. That was the ultimate mistake. But this is not what Samuel suggests. Instead, according to Samuel, that is not the case. Notice verse 13. It says, And Samuel said to Saul, he says, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commands of the Lord your God with which, you, which, he, with which he commanded you. Now, the word foolishly there is not talking about a lack of intelligence. The foolishness in what he's speaking about is, is the, to be a fool morally and spiritually. To not do what God has ultimately called you to do. So as good, listen to this, as good and as rational and even understandable as Saul's explanation of his disobedience was, it was not an adequate defense. It was not an adequate defense for you and I to be able to blame and justify our sinfulness on circumstances, difficult circumstances, and on difficult people. It's just simply not. Now, this is a simple message, is it not? But why is it so stinking difficult? It's so simple, but yet it's so unbelievably hard. And yet God's people, and even, even people that I have great respect for, and the first people to show up with the giant Bible and wear the WWJD bracelet and, and, and have the God is my co-pilot uh, you know, bumper sticker, if that's you, we love you, and have all of those things, but yet at the same exact time be able to sit there and say, this is the truth, except for when it applies to me and it becomes really, really, really really difficult. And all of a sudden, we begin to change. Do you understand that this is, this is really dangerous stuff for God's people? Told to determine what is right and what is wrong and when God's word will be accepted and when it will ultimately be rejected. This is, this is not the life of God's people. This is, this is not subservience to his ma- our, our master and to our king. Let me show you the third thing here we want to point out. We see Saul, Saul's painful consequences. And, and let me say something just very quickly here before we take before it finishes out. It was interesting because over the last several weeks, we, we even talked about, hey, there are always consequences for disobeying God. You, you guys remember that? And you know what worries me is when the response to that statement is, so how is it that God disciplines us? Okay, so let me answer that. First of all, you don't know. I don't know. I don't know when, where, how. I don't know to what extent. I don't know what he's going to do. All I know is according to Hebrews is that God is faithful to discipline his children to be able to lead them unto righteousness, okay? So we, we, we get, just, I just know it's there. The reason that that question, so how does God really go about, or how will God ultimately go about disciplining me? The reason I don't like that is because what we're doing is we're playing and we're trying to determine and we're trying to figure out the weight of that, okay? Well, is my disobedience to God going to be worth whatever that discipline is? Yeah, yes, you would. And that's the question. And that's not the direction that our hearts ought to be steered. It's not the kind of questions we need to be asking. But let's look at the painful consequences. There are two of them. Another, another one, when you disobey God blatantly, knowing what God is telling you to do, it's, it, it begins by giving up future blessings. Look at what the word says. For then the Lord... 
would have established your kingdom over, over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to, to prince over his people because you have not kept the Lord in what he has commanded you. Okay, so this is blatant, willful sin. What does it ultimately do? It, it, the consequence is the giving up of future blessings. What are those future blessings? I don't know. I don't know. All the Bible says is that they're future. Look, there will be nobody in this place, no matter where you fall in heaven and whatever your place is in heaven, there's not one person in here that will be disappointed. Would you agree? It's not like people are like, dude, his mansion's way bigger than mine. Bummer. All right, it's not, it's not, it's not the way it works. You will be as joyful as you could ever imagine being. Do you understand that? But there is always this option with God that sits there and says, listen, I had this for you. And you're like, God, you're so glorious and you're so wonderful. And it was all by your grace that all this is possible. But if God were to be able to sit there, and I doubt he does this in heaven because there'd probably be more tears at this point. Say, man, I have all this for you, but I had all this for you. This was for you. All this was for you had you, had you trusted me. Had you just listened to me? Had you just obeyed? And then he goes on. He says, I've got a man after my own heart. How does, how does he distinguish this man? Who, who's this man after his own heart that's coming? David, right? And how do we at least define that? We're going to define it in a lot of ways. But one of the ways that we understand what it means to be a man after God's own heart is that he submits to God's lordship in the midst of difficult situations and difficult times, and he, and he obeys. So first of all, there's a giving up of future blessings. Let me, let me show you a second thing. And I think that this is even more terrifying. It's, it's the giving up of present guidance. Now look at verse 15. You, you'll miss it if, if, if you don't look at the text. He says, And Samuel arose and he went up to, from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. Where do they do? Saul and Samuel go two different ways. You know what it's ultimately showing here? is the, the, the second consequence of purposely disobeying obeying God's word and rejecting his word is giving up of a present guidance. The Bible teaches us that the word of God is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. What does that mean? It directs us, shows us where to go, shows us how to go, keeps us out of trouble, keeps us away from destruction, the way of destruction, yes? The Bible also tells us in the New Testament that God tells us that the word of God is profitable. All the word of God is profitable. Do you, amen to that? Then why in the world would we jettison some of the word of God? We're saying it's not profitable. So we're saying it's not profitable. He goes, no, profitable. No, not profitable. No, profitable. So what are we doing? We're taking something that's profitable for us and whatever the reverse of that is, non-profitable, unprofitable. I don't know what the word is. I couldn't think of it in the last couple minutes. I should have looked up the synonym, but it's, 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 it's the opposite. I want to be profitable, not a lack of profit there. And so what he says, and so the scariest part about this is when you and I, listen very carefully, when you and I hear the clear word of God, and then we willfully choose because of difficult circumstances or whatever, which cannot be justified, and we choose to go our own way and do our own thing, it's not only ridding ourselves of future blessing of God, but now we are on our own. We have no direction. You are left to do what is right in your own eyes, and that does not bode well 
for a believer in Jesus Christ. Let me finish with, with four things. I've got three actually listed, but let me finish with four. He says, let us do, first of all, let us all encourage each other to, the, 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 um, to do what we know is clearly right. Look, there are enough things that I struggle with on a day-to-day basis that I'm accidentally doing. Are, are you with me on that? Accidentally, I, I, what I mean is I'm still, I'm still accountable for that sin, but there's enough things within my flesh that I'm still trying to work out that are still sinful. You with me? Thinking something I shouldn't be thinking, saying something that I shouldn't be saying, losing my temper when I shouldn't be losing my temper, saying things that are not uplifting, encouraging. I do that. But those are not things I sit down and go, you know, I'm going to be a real jerk to my family today. It's not something that I'm working on, something that comes naturally. All right. And so, so it's just something... But, but right, it's just, it's, it's not something that you're, you're, you're working on it. You know it's wrong. You're fighting against it. It's not something that you want. There's enough of that that when there's something so clear that God is calling me to do or telling me not to do, and it's clearly written in the word of God, when I have those opportunities, I need to seize them and I need to do what is right. Second thing, let us encourage each other to do what is right. Let's encourage each other. I want to add one thing to that. Let us compassionately encourage each other to do what is right. See, whenever we begin to talk what is right, see, there are people filled in our churches that, that have difficult circumstances and difficult people that they're having to deal with. Amen? All right, don't say too much amen. People are going to take offense, all right? So, but, but we do. And, and you run into people, God's people all the time, and you sit back and you're like, man, that is horrendous and that is awful. And they come to you for advice, and the advice that you give them can very clearly and very easily look as though it's unloving. It's unloving and it's uncaring because the advice that you're giving you, this is what I want you to do. I want you to make sure that you embrace that person and let them know that you have compassion for the difficulty that they're in. That you don't just sit there and go, well, the Bible says, and just pff, smash them with a the sledgehammer of the word. But sit down and maybe you and I need to spend more time weeping with each other and embracing each other and sitting back and going, brother, you are in a really, really horrible, difficult situation. Damn, this is awful. I wouldn't want this on anybody. Even on my worst enemy, I wouldn't want them to go through what it is that you're going through. I love you and I feel feel for you and I'm... My heart is broken for you. And I know this has got to be immensely hard. In fact, it's times like this that I myself struggle with the word of God because if there's, if there's ever a case that we could bypass God's word and do something else, this, this would have to be it. Because I love you. Because God loves you. I want to encourage you. I'm begging you. I'm pleading with God that you will trust him even in the midst of this difficulty and you will do what you know is right by God. It's the type of compassionate encouragement we need to give each other. Let me give you a third thing. Let us not allow ourselves to expect the worst when we obey, but rather to expect the best. See, this is what a lot of people do is is you sit there and go, well, this is what the word of God says. So you mean to tell me I'm supposed to suffer for the rest of my life? I don't remember saying that. You understand? It's like our minds are so negative. We immediately take the worst po- a, a, a bad scenario to its worst possible ending. Yes, each and every time. Let, let's not do that. We have a, love, a God who loves you and cares for you and, 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 and has a great hope and a great future for you. And, 
And, and he's got wonderful, gracious things for you. Does that not mean that we, we won't find ourselves in more difficulty? No, not at all. But we trust that God knows best for us. We, we do know that. But don't every time we sit there and, and you have a hard decision to make and sit there and go, does this mean I'm going to suffer for the rest of my life? Don't go there. Sit there and say, this is an opportunity for future blessing. See what it is that God will do through me, in me, and around me. Be more positive than that. Let me, let me wrap this up right before we take the Lord's Supper. Here it is. I, I do want to say, in part, that all of this, this is done in the Old Testament, so there's an Old Testament aspect of this, where what we're finding is we're going to be reminded that man cannot perfectly keep the word and the law of God. He can't do it. And that's going to happen time and time and time again. Even a man after God's own heart is going to end up failing. And so what we find is we're reminded that there is another one who is to come, who is a man after God's own heart, who will be tempted in every way, but yet he will not come to abolish the law, but he will keep the law, who they're ultimately referring to as not even David, but is the son of David, Jesus Christ, who will come. So there will be one that comes, because you and I have missed the mark in many ways, yes? We have sinned in many ways. We have failed in many ways that God has extended his grace by sending his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for us to not only take away our guilt and shame of sin, but to empower us and live within us and to break the bonds of sin so that you and I can live a life of obedience to God even when it's difficult. So this morning, I'm not calling you to just do better this morning. What I'm calling you to do is live in light of the grace that God has extended to you. I'm not calling you to try to get into the graces of God by doing right. What I'm calling you to do is he's already extended his mercy and grace to you. Now, in light of what he's given and what he's done, let us press on to do what is right. Amen? Let's do that. Well, let's close our eyes, bow our heads. My brother's going to come. We're going to pray. There is going to be a moment of response. Let's stand. Let's stand just for a moment. And what we're going to do is we're going to have a time of response to pray to give over to God, to repent, to turn, to seek his forgiveness. And then we're going to be taking of the Lord's Supper as my brother prayed. Dear Jesus, lead us, guide us, direct us. In Jesus' name, amen.